0: Deuteronomy 18, starting at verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. That's Titus chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Saviour, to Titus my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour.
1: I do keep Titus open and we'll be looking at those few verses as we start this series in this very great book. But let me begin by reading something else, an email that I was sent quite recently. Good afternoon, Tim. My name is Tony with Vet IQ Staffing and I saw you might be interested in relief work with us Don't worry, Jason, I'm not about to quit. Here at Vet IQ Staffing, our mission is to provide a customized solution for each veterinarian we partner with. Now, it would have to be pretty customized for it to work for me. I'd need to learn how to be a vet for a start. I'd need to get over my fear, my phobia of almost every single animal. And they go on to talk about offering travel relief later in the email. I'm not sure they realized how expensive that would be, because they seem to think that I live near them in Dallas, Texas. (laughs) It's obviously not an email that was supposed to be for me. It was actually intended for a different Tim Shepard, but it came into my inbox. And so I wasn't that interested in reading on. But what if it had said this? Good afternoon, Tim. My name is Tony, and I saw you might be interested in relief work with us. Our mission is to provide a solution to fix the world. And we found out how to make the world a better place. You'd probably think it was a scam, right? You'd think it was someone who was trying to fish for some money or something like that. But there'd be a part of you that was interested, wouldn't there? You'd at least read to the next line. Oh, what if it said this? Good afternoon, Tim. This is Tony. And God has told me how to fix the world. Well, now you'd be sure it was a scam. If there was a chance, even just a chance, that God really had told him how to make the world a better place, how to deal with the deceit and the violence and the greed, how to make people more loving and and patient and self-controlled, even if it's intended for someone else, you've never met Tony, wouldn't you want to read on? Well, change the names, and that is a summary of what we're looking at this evening, this afternoon. Good afternoon, Titus. This is Paul. And God has told me how to fix the world. And you know it's intended for someone else. I don't know if there's anyone here called Titus. uh, But this is addressed to a guy called Titus who was a church leader living in Crete about 2,000 years ago. It is intended for someone else. But you know that this guy, Paul, he's telling the truth. God has told him. It's intended for someone else. But you want to read on, don't you? Good afternoon, Titus. This is Paul. And God has told me how to fix the world. And we don't even need to feel guilty about opening up someone else's post, because Paul actually intends that other people will read this letter. Just look at the end of the letter, at the very last sentence on the right-hand page there. Grace be with you all. Even while it is addressed to the one guy, Titus, he expects it to be read by a whole bunch of people. Because even while God's strategy for fixing the world has a particular application to people like Titus, it is profoundly relevant to all of us. Uh, At times, this book of Titus will read like a job description for church leaders. But it turns out that is a job description that all of us should want to read and to hear. But Paul actually starts by talking about his own work. And there are three particular things for us to see, which you can follow on the handout inside your sheets uh, if you would like to. Uh, Firstly, Paul's is a ministry about truth. A ministry uh, about truth. Let me read again from verse 1. Paul, the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. There's lots going on there. But can you see what Paul is committed to? The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. I'm guessing it's not a huge surprise to us if we know anything of the Bible that Paul would be committed to people believing at his message. He is the great apostle to the Gentiles, the missionary to the nations. He wants people to believe, but he wants people to have a faith that clings to the truth. Their knowledge of the truth is what he's committed to, as much as he is committed to their faith. Paul is a faith and truth man. And the reason that he cares about the truth, the reason it matters so much to him, is that as he says here, knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Truth. He says, fits with godliness. And that might not seem very radical to us. Now, so what, Tim? Truth and godliness, they're best friends? Yep, that makes sense to me. It doesn't seem that radical. But in the context of Crete, that is a huge thing for Paul to say. Because Crete was not a godly place. Now, just look down at 1 verse 12. At 1 verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's what they said about themselves. And Paul himself, he goes on to say this testimony is true. Crete was not a godly place. And people had lots of different ways of trying to deal with it. Some are pretending that it's not really an issue. Lying's okay, isn't it, really? Other people trying to legislate to deal with it. More police, more laws. The particular challenge for Titus was those who were going around the church saying that the solution was to be more religious. And so when Paul starts his letter by saying that it's knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, he's not just saying, hey, these two things fit really well together. He's saying that if you want a godly Crete, knowledge of the truth is what you need. He's saying that the way to fix the world, even deceitful, violent, greedy Crete, well, it's to teach them the truth. I'm not saying it's just some sort of equation. I Put in truth in one end and out the other end pops godliness. Of course there is more. There's more we'll see elsewhere in the book. Uh, It is a work of God's spirit for people to become godly. We need to pray. It is a work of faith. We need to believe. It is a work. It takes effort. Nor am I assuming that all Christians will be, that any Christian will be perfectly godly. You only need to be in church for a short while to see that we are all a work in progress. Even while God works through his gospel truth to transform us, we are still sinful. We still get stuff wrong. But it would be possible for us to get so buried in caveats that we skip the huge significance of those few words. Paul says he is all about the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. If you want to see people grow in godliness, if you want to see the wickedness of our world brought to an end, if you want to see the world transformed, then all of our prayer and our faith and our efforts should be around teaching people the truth. A week or so ago, I went to visit a friend who works in Parliament, and we went to spend a few minutes in the public gallery of the House of Lords, just because I'd never been there before, and they were sitting, which means that they were having a chat about some stuff. I'm not sure that's how they'd phrase it, but there you go. Uh, they happened to be debating the, uh, the illegal migration bill, which has been yo-yoing between the House of Commons and the House of Lords recently. Maybe you've seen it in the news. We happened to visit the chamber at the very time that they were debating an amendment from the Archbishop of Canterbury which again has been in the news, seeking to commit the government to a long-term strategy. It was the archbishop's attempt to constrain the government to be compassionate, to be welcoming and loving, to be like Jesus. It was a call to godliness in some senses. Now, whatever you think of the politics of it, that commitment to compassion is a beautiful thing, isn't it? But it occurred to me while I was sitting there That the most useful thing the Archbishop of Canterbury can do to reform UK society is not what he contributes in the House of Lords, but what he teaches from the pulpit. I found myself praying for him while I was sat there, not for his politics, but for his preaching, that he would teach the truth. Some of you are thinking, oh, classic Tim, classic St. Helens, banging on about truth. Indeed, some of us are quite embarrassed about how big a deal we make of truth. But can you see why someone might? Why Paul does? Why he makes it a central plank of his ministry. Paul, a servant of of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. This is God's instrument to transform the world. What else would we bang on about? But of course, it begs the question, what is that truth that Paul is devoted to? What is this truth? Well, that takes us to point two, a ministry about hope, a ministry about hope. Let me read again from verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. The truth that transforms the world It's the good news of our salvation, the the hope of eternal life, as it's put here. Lots of religions talk about the hope of eternal life. They talk about salvation. Indeed, for many of them, it is a means to try and persuade people to be godly. But for them, it works like this. If you change how you live, if you do enough to deserve it, then you'll get eternal life. That's not how Paul is using it here. When Paul says the truth that transforms the world is concerning the hope of eternal life, He's not talking about manipulating people into trying to earn eternal life. He's talking about motivating people by the eternal life that they already have been given. If I can put it like this eternal life doesn't come to those who've changed, change comes to those who've been given eternal life. Indeed, the language of hope here is not that vague sense of longing like we use hope. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope I win the lottery. Cross your fingers and hope for the best. The Bible writers didn't hope with crossed fingers. Their hope was one of certain expectation, the anticipation now of something that will definitely come in the future. The hope of eternal life was the certainty Christians have that we will live forever. If you've been here over the last few weeks, it's what we've been thinking about in Philippians, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We look forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We were singing about awaiting a savior from heaven. And that hope, that salvation is the truth that comes up again and again in the book of Titus to motivate godliness. And we don't have time to go through all of the references now, but we will see it again and again as we go through the series. It is God's salvation. It is gift of eternal life, which Paul consistently uses to motivate our transformed living. Not change in order to get eternal life, but change because you have eternal life. That is the truth that produces godliness. That is what fixes the world. People talk about being so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly use. Have you heard that phrase before? As though hoping in eternal life is going to make you less useful here. Far from it. The truth that we can hope in eternal life, is what will make the difference here on earth. And yet how quickly we lose sight of that message. It's so easy to make our message focused on some other earthly targets. We distract ourselves with more sort of acceptable goals. A few months ago, I was working with some students from other churches, and I asked them what they thought the message was that we are, have been given to proclaim by Jesus. And almost all of them said, love one another. Well, it's true, we want the world to be a better place. We want people to love one another. But that godliness will only grow in the soil of gospel truth. Those flowers will only blossom if they are watered with the hope of eternal life. And maybe the reason that we're tempted to go to other things is that we feel a bit uneasy talking about this future. I mean, it really all hangs on how confident you can be that it's coming. But it turns out that ministry focused on the hope of eternal life is the one that we can really get behind. Point three on the handout, a ministry you can trust. ministry you can trust. Paul gives us a three-step confidence boost in the rest of these verses. Let me pick him up, pick it up again from verse two. In hope of eternal life, he said, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. I wonder, did you spot three steps there? For a start, he says it's promised by God who never lies. Can you see how that gives us confidence? Imagine for a second it was just phrased very slightly differently. Imagine he said this eternal life was promised by God who rarely lies. That would change it quite a lot, wouldn't it? God who only sometimes lies. God who generally avoids lying. Consider what it might have said, and you realize how, well, how much it matters. But he never lies. Everything he promises, he does. And that's something that would, even, that would be even more precious to the Cretans. Do you remember they, they were described in verse 12 as those who were always liars. In a place where lying was considered kind of culturally appropriate, Well, we might think the hope of eternal life is just clickbait to get us in. A manifesto promise that's just waiting to be broken. But God never lies. When he promises something, even something as remarkable as eternal life, he always delivers. And we can be even more confident because that promise has now been manifested. For a long time, it remained a promise. We we heard one of those promises in Deuteronomy 18 earlier. But verse 3 says, at the proper time, i.e. now, God manifested this promise in his words. This hope of life has been manifested. It's been revealed. It's, it's appeared. Indeed, language of appearing is going to uh, crop up throughout the book as Paul talks about the unveiling of his promise, of God's promise in Jesus. Uh, for all that God had promised it before, now it has been made known. It's on display. Christ Jesus, God our Saviour, has stepped into the world. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die in order to rescue us. It is as forgiven sinners, those washed clean, that we can have certainty of life beyond the grave. As we'll sing a bit later, my life is his and his hope is mine. It's what we've been thinking about all afternoon, isn't it? Jesus is the truth. He has stepped into the world and manifested the promises of God. You were always able to take God at his words, but now, what Paul calls the proper time, whatever was hidden has been brought to light. You can look at the person of Jesus and see these promises out in the open. Even if God wanted to go back on it, and he doesn't, but even if he did, he couldn't, because it's a done deal. Eternal life has been promised and now manifested in the Lord Jesus. And it's at this point that Paul returns to the idea of his own role in all of this. Verse three again, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Because of course we can't actually see Jesus anymore. He has gone into heaven. But we still have access to his revelation through the preaching of Paul about Jesus. And that's why verse 3 actually says manifested in his word. It is through the coming of Jesus that this promise has been manifested. But it is through the gospel word that these promises are manifested for the generations to come. And God has entrusted that gospel word to Paul. If you were around a couple of years ago, we were looking through the book of Acts and we saw that very moment when God commanded, God our Savior, as he's described here, commanded Paul to preach the gospel. There's a link on the handout if you want to listen to one of the sermons we preached on it later. And now, as Paul is writing to Titus much later in his ministry, he calls back to that moment to give us confidence in what he's still preaching. God's promise of eternal life, once promised, now manifested and entrusted to Paul. Which, of course, makes these few verses that we've been looking at for the last few minutes particularly unique to Paul. I've been implying uh, for the the whole of the talk that this is ministry God has given us to do. But in the first instance, this introduction is all about Paul. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul talks about the preaching with which he has been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. It's a validation of the ministry he was given. It's about the gospel work that was entrusted to him. Good afternoon, Titus, this is Paul, and God has told me how to fix the world. But before we think, well, in that case, it's not very relevant to us. It gives us a bit of an introduction, but it doesn't mean much more to me. Actually, it is still very relevant to us, isn't it? It clarifies that churches that want to change the world should seek to follow in the footsteps of Paul. That like Titus, we should seek to be Paul's true children, verse 4, in a common faith that we should engage in this trustworthy ministry of truth and hope. Because as we do so, we are engaging in the work that God has commissioned to transform the world. Some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, sure, okay. So that makes it a bit more relevant for you, Tim. You've basically just given us, I don't know how long, 15, 20 minutes of what you have got to do. Thanks for reading out your job description for us which if you are thinking that, let me tell you, the next few weeks are going to be quite tough going for you. It's an extended job description. But as I said before, it's a job description that all of us need to read. Actually, we all need to know what work the church is to be doing. Some people here might just be arriving in London at the moment, thinking about which sort of job to join. Well, here's a job description that is essential for making that decision. Don't you want a church that is engaging in God-commissioned, world-transforming work? This tells us the sort of work that church should be doing. Others of you moving away from London, maybe, about to head off to pastures new. Well, whichever church you move to, make sure it is a ministry that attends to these words, that is committed to this gospel word that God entrusted to Paul. And even if you're not moving, which I hope is most of us, I hope we'll all still be around. We're still engaged in this ministry together, aren't we? It's a job description for me. Please keep reminding me that this is what I've got to do. But it's a job description in some respects that all of us need to be committed to. It's not just the Tituses of this world that proclaim this gospel word. Indeed, we'll actually see later in the series lots of ways that this cashes out in our different roles. And so this is a paragraph that validates whichever ways you are partnering in gospel ministry. One of the students sent me a message this week about reading Mark, Mark's gospel one-to-one with a friend of his. And I was thrilled because as he takes out this gospel word, he's engaging in God-commissioned, world-transforming ministry. As you talk about the hope of eternal life with each other, I hope, at the end of our meeting as you chat with neighbours and schoolmates and colleagues, as you present the truth about Jesus, the hope of eternal life, God's promise made manifest in the same way that Paul did, while you're engaging in God-commissioned, world-transforming work. Think about what else you could be committed to instead. Imagine instead that you did actually work in Westminster, and were involved in the huge discussions about the law, the law, and uh, instituting big, significant things over there. There is wonderful, good work going on in government. I take it to try and make this world, uh, this country, a better place. It is good work, but it cannot fix the world. Uh, that amendment from the Archbishop was months in the making. If you've been following, over the, uh, following the news you'll have seen its steady progress. But when it was debated in the House of Commons later on, after I'd seen it, well, it was dismissed. For all the effort that went into it, for all of the planning and preparation, it's been defeated. Laws are like that, aren't they? They can be overturned. They can be ignored. Now, sure, they might be used to restrain evil, and we can praise God for that. But you can't legislate for godliness. And yet as you communicate the gospel words in your office or your playground or the pub, you have more power to effect genuine societal reform than the most powerful government officials in Westminster. Westminster is not the cutting edge of reforming society. The church is. We are. Not because we're so great, but because God is. And he has given us this ministry of truth, a ministry of hope. That is what leads to godliness. That is what fixes the world. And I hope that's made you excited to read on in this letter and to see more of what Titus has to offer us. It's not a letter that was addressed to you. But unlike lots of posts that might land on your map that was actually attempted, uh, intended for someone else, I hope you've been persuaded this is a letter that's worth reading on. And that's what we're going to get to do over the course of this summer. Good afternoon, Titus. This is Paul. And God has told me how to fix the world. Well, you better make sure that you come back to him more next week. For now, why don't I lead us in a prayer? Our Father, we do thank you that you are the God who has promised eternal life. Thank you that that life has been manifested in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for entrusting your gospel word about him to Paul. And thank you for committing this work to your church still today. That this world might be blessed with this wonderful truth, this ministry of hope. And we pray you would use us to effect real change in our world today. In Jesus' name, amen.